Chapter Two, Part Five of *The Princess Aline* by Richard Harding Davis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Caroline. Chapter Two, Part Five. They left Constantinople for Athens one moonlit night, three days after the Hohenwalds had taken their departure, and as the evening and the air were warm, they remained upon the upper deck until the boat had entered the Dardanelles. There were few passengers, and Mrs. Downs went below early, leaving Miss Morris and Carlton hanging over the rail, and looking down upon a band of Hungarian gypsies, who were playing the weird music of their country on the deck beneath them the low receding hills lay close on either hand and ran back so sharply from the narrow waterway that they seemed to shut in the boat from the world beyond the moonlight showed a little mud fort or a thatched cottage on the bank fantastically as through a mist and from time to time as they sped forward they saw the camp-fire of a sentry and his shadows as he passed between it and them or stopped to cover it with a wood the night was so still that they could hear the waves in the steamer's wake washing up over the stones on either shore and the muffled beat of the engines echoed back from either side of the valley through which they passed there was a great lantern hanging midway from the mast and shining down upon the lower deck it showed a group of greeks turks and armenians in strange costumes sleeping huddled together in picturesque confusion over the bare boards or wide awake and voluble smoking and chatting together in happy company the music of the tisans rose in notes of passionate ecstasy and sharp unexpected bursts of melody it ceased and began again as though the musicians were feeling their way and then burst out once more into shrill defiance it stirred carlton with a strange turbulent unrest from the banks the night wind brought soft odours of fresh earth and of heavy foliage the music of different countries carlton said at last means many different things but it seems to me that the music of hungary is the music of love miss morris crossed her arms comfortably on the rail and he heard her laugh softly oh no it is not she said undisturbed it is a passionate gusty heady sort of love if you like but it's no more like the real thing than burgundy is like clear cold good water it's not the real thing at all i beg your pardon said carlton meekly of course i don't know anything about it he had been waked out of the spell which the knight and the tisans had placed upon him as completely as though some one had shaken him sharply by the shoulder i bow he said to your superior knowledge i know nothing about it 
"'No, you are quite right. I don't believe you do know anything about it,' said the girl. "'Or you wouldn't have made such a comparison.' "'Do you know, Miss Morris,' said Carlton, seriously, "'that I believe I'm not able to care for a woman as other men do, at least as some men do. It's just lacking in me, and always will be lacking. It's like an ear for music. If you haven't got it, if it isn't born in you, you'll never have it. It's not a thing you can cultivate, and I feel that it's not only a misfortune, but a fault. Now, I honestly believe that I care more for the Princess Aline, whom I have never met, than many other men could care for her if they knew her well, but what they would feel would last, and I have doubts from past experience that what I feel would. I don't doubt it while it exists, but it never does exist long, and so I am afraid it is going to be with me to the end of the chapter. He paused for a moment, but the girl did not answer. "'I am speaking in earnest now,' he added, with a rueful laugh. "'I see you are,' she replied briefly. She seemed to be considering his condition as he had described it to her, and he did not interrupt her. From below them came the notes of the waltz the gypsies played. It was full of the undercurrent of sadness that a waltz should have, and filled out what Carlton said, as the music from the orchestra in a theatre heightens the effect without interrupting the words of the actor on the stage. "'It is strange,' said Miss Morris. "'I should have thought you were a man who would care very much, and in just the right way. But I don't believe really—I'm sorry— but i don't believe you do know what love means at all oh it isn't as bad as that said carlton i think i know what it is and what it means to other people but i can't feel it myself the best idea i ever got of it the thing that made it clear to me was a line in a play it seemed to express it better than any of the love poems i ever read it was in Shenandoah. Miss Morris laughed. I beg your pardon, said Carlton. I beg yours, she said. It was only the incongruity that struck me. It seemed so odd to be quoting Shenandoah here in the Dardanelles, with these queer people below us, and ancient Troy on one hand. It took me by surprise, that's all. Please go on. What was it impressed you? Well, the hero in the play, said Carlton, is an officer in the Northern Army, and he is lying wounded in a house near the Shenandoah Valley. The girl he loves lives in this house and is nursing him, but she doesn't love him because she sympathizes with the South at least she says she doesn't love him both armies are forming in the valley below to begin the battle and he sees his own regiment hurrying past to join them so he gets up and staggers out on the stage which is set to show the yard in front of the farmhouse 
and he calls for his horse to follow his men. Then the girl runs out and begs him not to go, and he asks why, what does it matter to her whether he goes or not? And she says, but I cannot let you go, you may be killed. And he says again, what is that to you? And she says, it is everything to me, I love you. And he makes a grab at her with his wounded arm, and at that instant both armies open fire in the valley below, and the whole earth and sky seem to open and shut, and the house rocks. The girl rushes at him and crowds up against his breast, and cries, "'What is that? Oh, what is that?' And he holds her tight to him and laughs, and says, "'That?' that's only a battle you love me miss morris looked steadfastly over the side of the boat at the waters rushing by beneath smiling to herself then she turned her face towards carlton and nodded her head at him i think she said dryly that you have a fair idea of what it means a rough working plan at least enough to begin with i said that i knew what it meant to others i am complaining that i cannot feel it myself that will come in time no doubt she said encouragingly with the air of a connoisseur and let me tell you she added that it will be all the better for the woman that you have doubted yourself so long you think so said carlton eagerly miss morris laughed at his earnestness and left him to go below to ask her aunt to join them but mrs downes preferred to read in the saloon and miss morris returned alone she had taken off her eton jacket and pulled on a heavy blue football sweater and over this a reefer the jersey clung to her and showed the lines of her figure and emphasized the freedom and grace with which she made every movement she looked as she walked at his side with her hands in the pockets of her coat and with a flat sailor hat on her head like a tall handsome boy but when they stopped and stood where the lights fell full on her hair and the exquisite colouring of her skin, Carlton thought her face had never seemed so delicate or fair as it did then, rising from the colour of the rough jersey and contrasted with the hat and coat of a man's attire they paced the deck for an hour later until every one else had left it and at midnight were still loath to give up the beautiful night and the charm of their strange surroundings there were long silent places in their talk during which carlton tramped beside her with his head half turned looking at her and noting with an artist's eye the free light step the erect carriage and the unconscious beauty of her face the captain of the steamer joined them after midnight and falling into step 
pointed out to miss morris where great cities had stood where others lay buried and where beyond the hills were the almost inaccessible monasteries of the greek church the moonlight turned the banks into shadowy substances in which the ghosts of former days seemed to make a part and spurred by the young girl's interest the italian to entertain her called up all the legends of mythology and the stories of roman explorers and turkish conquerors i turn in now he said after miss morris had left them a most charming young lady is it not so he added waving his cigarette in a gesture which expressed the ineffectiveness of the adjective uh, yes very said carlton good-night sir he turned and leaned with both elbows on the rail and looked out at the misty banks puffing at his cigar then he dropped it hissing into the water and stifling a yawn looked up and down the length of the deserted deck it seemed particularly bare and empty what a pity she's engaged carlton said she loses so much by it they steamed slowly into the harbour of the piraeus at an early hour the next morning with a flotilla of small boats filled with shrieking porters and hotel runners at the side these men tossed their painters to the crew and crawled up them like a boarding crew of pirates running wildly about the deck and laying violent hands on any piece of baggage they saw unclaimed the passengers trunks had been thrown out in a heap on the deck and nolan and carlton were clambering over them looking for their own effects while miss morris stood below as far out of the confusion as she could place herself and pointed out the different pieces that belonged to her as she stood there one of the hotel runners a burly greasy levantine in pursuit of a possible victim shouldered her intentionally and roughly out of the way he shoved her so sharply that she lost her balance and fell back against the rail carlton saw what had happened and made a flying leap from the top of the pile of trunks landing beside her and in time to seize the escaping offender by the collar he jerked him back off his feet how dare you he began but he did not finish he felt the tips of miss morris's fingers laid upon his shoulder and her voice saying in an annoyed tone don't please don't and to his surprise his fingers lost their grip on the man's shirt his arms dropped at his side and his blood began to flow calmly again through his veins carlton was aware that he had a very quick temper 
He was always engaging in street rows, as he called them, with men who he thought had imposed on him or someone else, and though he was always ashamed of himself later, his temper had never been satisfied without a blow or an apology. Women had also touched him before, and possibly with a greater familiarity, but these had stirred him, not quieted him, and men who had laid detaining hands on him had had them beaten down for their pains. But this girl had merely touched him gently, and he had been made helpless. It was most perplexing, and while the custom-house officials were passing his luggage, he found himself rubbing his arm curiously, as though it were numb, and looking down at it with an amused smile. He did not comment on the incident, although he smiled at the recollection of his prompt obedience several times during the day. But as he was stepping into the cab to drive to Athens, he saw the offending ruffian pass, dripping with water, and muttering bitter curses. When he saw Carlton, he disappeared instantly in the crowd. Carlton stepped over to where Nolan sat beside the driver on the box. Nolan, he said in a low voice, isn't that the fellow who— Yes, sir, said Nolan, touching his hat gravely. He was pulling a valise one way, and the gentleman that owned it, sir, was pulling it the other, and the gentleman let go sudden, and the Italian went over backwards off the pier. Carlton smiled grimly with secret satisfaction. Nolan, he said, you're not telling the truth. You did it yourself. Nolan touched his cap and coughed consciously. There had been no detaining fingers on Nolan's arm. End of chapter 2, part 5